I was terrified. Where were they? Ella, age six, and Lincoln, age four, had absolutely vanished. We were staying at this creepy resort. Well, resort is too kind of a word. It was more like an abandoned camp. My sister-in-law had booked this so-called resort a year in advance for our family reunion. She had already put down a $5,000 deposit, assuring us that there would be private rooms for each family and all 35 of us could gather together in the common room for meals. And there was a swimming pool and a place to have bonfires. There was even a petting zoo and a fake cowboy gunfight. It was going to be great, she said, and the price was right except that a couple of weeks before the family reunion, she actually went over to visit this so-called resort, and it was creepy. And her husband said, I'm not staying there. The rooms smell terrible. But we couldn't get our deposit back, and so we decided that we would make the best of it. And midway through this family reunion, we were all relaxed and having a good time when suddenly we couldn't find Ella or Lincoln. We looked in every single room. The parents and the grandparents and the aunts and the uncles and the cousins, we all looked at one another with panic in our eyes and we spanned out in different directions, some going to the pool and some to the petting zoo and some to the kitchen and yes, some of us out on the highway and I was terrified, terrified. What if we couldn't find them? And what felt like an hour passed but I bet it was only seven, eight, nine minutes. And we found them, and those two wee ones had joined up with the teenagers in one of the rooms, and they were having a merry good time playing a brand new game. And the sight of their sweet faces, whew, it cast a sigh of relief on all of our faces. And the parents had to sit them down and tell them that they had done the wrong thing by leaving their rooms. But we grandparents, we only knew pure joy. How do we move from terror to joy, to being overjoyed? The shepherds were out there in the fields keeping their flocks by night when something happened. What was that? Oh no, did you hear that? They looked at each other. They were trying to be brave, but all of them were trembling in fear. And then the angel said to them, stop. Stop being afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. And in what seems like 10 minutes, but I bet it took hours, maybe even weeks, they moved from trembling in fear to standing over the crib of a newborn infant, astonished by the wonder of it all. How do we move from terror to joy? This December, we've been thinking about joy a lot because it's the 300th anniversary of Isaac Watts' famous Christmas carol, Joy to the World. But so many on this planet live in terror. And sometimes it feels a bit disingenuous to even think about joy. How do we wear the costume of joy when our country wrestles with impeachment? How do we sing the carols of joy when 70 million of our brothers and sisters in this human family have been forcibly displaced from their tents and their homes and their cabins because of either persecution or conflict? 
How do we dare raise a glass of champagne for a toast when the second leading cause of death amongst teenagers and young adults here in our land of plenty is suicide? And those are just of the few gigantic fears that we share communally, but what about our own private and personal fears, the ones that wake us up in the middle of the night wondering if joy will ever return? How do we move from fear to joy? Here's how it happened for a young woman named Nell. Nell grew up in Alabama. Nell dropped out of law school six months prior to graduation, and she moved to New York to try her wings at being a professional writer. But writing was not immediately lucrative for Nell, and so she had to make ends meet by working as a reservation agent at an airline, and at Christmas time, she was always homesick because the airline couldn't give her more than maybe a half day, possibly a full day off. And so she missed those southern traditions in Alabama, like the oyster dressing on her grandmother's table, or the sound of her father playing joy to the world on his bass. She was melancholy in Manhattan, but on this particular Christmas, she spent the afternoon with friends, a married couple who were also trying to become professional writers and sometimes were actually making it. This married couple they were parents to two small children, and the children were lavished with wonderful gifts, while the adults promised that they would only exchange trinket gifts that cost just a few pennies. In the 1961 article in McCall's magazine, Nell wrote, Christmas to me, it was only a memory of old loves and empty rooms, something I buried with the past, that underwent a vague resurrection every once a year. On this particular Christmas, Nell sat in the corner watching the children open their toy rockets and their other lavish gifts from Santa. They were enthusiastic, they were noisy, they were exuberant, and she was sitting there in the corner and she noticed her friend, the wife of the couple, had a small pile of gifts right next to her chair but next to Nell's chair, there was nothing. And then when all the hubbub subsided, her friends pointed to a little envelope underneath the Christmas tree. Go over and get that, Nell. And she opened it up and she read inside the envelope, you have one year off from work to write anything you want. She was stunned. What a risk. She, she said, no, I can't accept such a gift. And they insisted, they said, please, Nell, just permit us to believe in you. And finally she did. Finally, Nell realized that this was not so much an act of generosity on the part of her friends as it was an act of love. And then Nell Harper Lee wrote To Kill a Mockingbird which has sold over 30 million copies, of course been made into the beloved film, and is now a hit show on Broadway. Nell moved from fear to joy when she realized she was loved, that someone actually believed in her, that someone would take a chance on her, and I wonder if that's the same movement that happened in the lives of the shepherds. Did they hear in the angels' song or did they see in the baby's face that somehow 
God believed in them, that the unfathomable love of God was being revealed to them in the baby's tender human flesh. And suddenly they were rejoicing. What about us? How do we move from terror to joy? The angels say, stop being afraid, but you and I know it, it, it isn't that simple. Fear cannot be banished by force. It can only be replaced by joy. You cannot simply tell fear, pack up your bags and move out. Fear lingers. Fear moves in and refuses to pay rent. Fear clings to you when you no longer want to feel it. And oftentimes, these fears of ours are completely well-founded. Cancer, infertility, Alzheimer's, autism, loneliness, bankruptcy, discrimination, depression. We, all of us, we have some good reasons to be afraid. And so did Helen and David. In early December, journalist Karen Blankfield reported the story of how Helen and David first met in Auschwitz. They were young adults, late teens, early 20s, both Jewish. Helen and David were prisoners of war, but Helen and David had been given privileged positions within the death camps, positions that kept them temporarily safe. David was a talented opera singer, and so he was frequently invited to sing arias for his Nazi captors. Helen was a graphic designer, and she held a privileged position in the office handling important paperwork for the camp. Helen and David would meet between crematoriums four and five in secret to rendezvous. They pledged to keep their love affair alive even after the war ended, and they promised that after the war, each of them would make it to Warsaw and they would wait for one another at the community center. David never showed up. He was picked up by American soldiers and fled to safety in America where he had relatives who would help him begin a new life. Helen and David each married other people. David raised children with his wife and she and her husband did humanitarian work all around the globe. And 72 years later, these lovers met in New York City. Helen was in poor health and had gone blind. David sat by her bedside holding her hand and the two of them reminisced about their love affair. He had one important question he had waited 72 years to ask her. Did you have something to do with the fact that I survived in Auschwitz? She held up her hand with five fingers. Five times, she said to him, I saved you from bad shipment. Amazing, he said, amazing. I love you. I love you too, she said. And then she asked David if he would sing to her. And he sang her a song that she had first taught to him in Auschwitz. He wanted her to know that he still remembered the words in Hungarian. Helen and David found joy in the midst of terror through love. By loving him, she saved him. And that's how love works. 
it miraculously appears even in our own human flesh. It shows up in you. It shows up in me. God came among us in human flesh, not only so that we would know that we were loved, but so that we also might love. I suppose that's the reason that we go through all of this with the lights and the carols and the decorations and the gifts and the parties and the concerts every single year to remind ourselves that terror can turn to joy, that fear can erupt into rejoicing. But isn't it sometimes so hard to believe? Is it really true? Is God really among us, within us, around us? Or is God only making the stars shine bright in the night, but leaving you and me here alone in the fear? Is God still giving birth to love among us? Mickey Mantle, he had an amazing career in baseball, but you may recall he also had a rough personal life. Alcoholism plagued him, and long after his amazing career from Major League Baseball, Mickey had to have a liver transplant. He became an advocate for organ donation, and a reporter asked him one time at a press conference, Mickey, have you signed the organ donor card? And he said, no, actually, I haven't. He said, everything I have is all used up. Although some people say they would like to have my heart because it's never been used. Mickey was wrong. He had indeed loved. His son said that their dad had a heart of gold. When his dad died and Mickey was only 21, he began providing for his mother and his siblings and his in-laws. He was loved by his teammates and by his kids, and he had certainly made many mistakes. All of us have. But he had loved, and he had been loved, Sure, his heart had been used. Every single one of us has a heart, a heart that has been used. And that is how our terror turns to joy when God's divine love rises up within our own fragile human flesh. God became like one of us so that we could become like God.